0: And my name is Derek Matthews. I get to serve here uh, at Watermark uh, within our uh, Watermark Institute, which is our year long discipleship program uh, designed for people interested in vocational ministry. Uh, I also get to serve here uh, within our equipping ministry, which is coming at you live right now. Um, and so, uh, love that I get to uh, just join in with what God is doing uh, here at Watermark. Uh, And just as you're coming in, just let me just share just real quick, I I came here about four or five years ago, um, burned out, overwhelmed, stressed out, hurt by the church, and just praying, God, if this is ministry, if this is what it means to be a part of the church, I don't want anything to do with it. Um, And then I came here, and I saw a group of individuals loving one another um, as I've been loved in Christ. And so I don't know where you're at in your spiritual journey, but I just want to say welcome to you. Um, and whether or not you've kind of just stumbled in here and just kind of given Jesus a try or you've been walking faithfully with Jesus for years and years and years and years, the, the command to you uh, from Jesus is always the same, that you would follow him and find life and life to the fullness in him. Uh, and so before we jump in, let me pray for us and our time this morning. Uh, Father, we just thank you. Thank um, you. Thank you for this time that we get to gather together as men, and and so goes the men, so goes the church. So, God, thank you for the hundreds of men that decided to, to not hit the snooze button five more times, but rather to come and to gather around with other men, open up your word, and look at the man, Jesus Christ. So, God, would you be with us this morning? Would you open up our hearts to see what you want us to see? And would you help us to see Jesus? And So Lord, we do love you. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, well, when I turned 18, uh, I went skydiving. Uh, so somehow I got to convince my parents that that was a good idea. Don't know how that worked, Sign off on it. But how many of y'all, just show of hands, have ever been skydiving before? All right. All right. Got some daredevils in the room. All right, so if you haven't been, let me just kind of paint you a picture of how that scenario plays out. Uh, so you you go to this place. It's in the kind of the middle of nowhere. Typically, uh, it's in like an abandoned field. You're, I have this. You go to this uh, renovated shed, basically that they've turned into a, a an airplane hangar. Like you go into this place. I, I remember walking up, and every single person that worked there, no joke, had like full sleeve tattoos piercings and drove motorcycles like every single one of them identical nothing against sleeve tattoos or piercing or motorcycles but when I think safety and responsibility I don't always think sleeve tattoos piercings and motorcycles so no offense if you have those I just don't always run to oh this is the person I want to entrust my life with you know uh, so we go in, uh, you, they bring you into this little room, you watch this video that literally is just every possible way you could die uh, in the next half hour as you jump out of a perfectly good airplane. And uh, then they give you this like baby blue jumpsuit, which I think is just to emasculate you. Uh, they're all wearing like dark navies and you're wearing this like very childish looking uh, Halloween costume, but it's okay. So um, then they introduce you to uh, your instructor. You see, the first time you go uh, uh, skydiving, you, you don't go on your own. Uh, you do what's called tandem jumping, which is uh, jumping with someone that you're, you're actually attached to. In order to be an instructor, in, in order to take people to go tandem jumping, they, they have to do thousands and thousands and thousands of jumps. These people are experts in the field, and so everyone's meeting their uh, individual, and then the guy that's gonna be my instructor walks up to me, and no joke, he's like five foot nothing. And so he just walks up, and I'm like, oh, look at you. Okay. Are we going to go in the airplane together? Does your dad know you're here? Like, like it was... I mean, like, no joke, he's was just little, and he just walked up, but he started to explain to me how this was going to go. He goes, hey, there's these carabiners, they can hold up a car, we got six of them, they're going to hold us together. There's these straps that are unbreakable, I'm like, all these different things. And he says, hey, do you trust me in this? I was like, yeah, of course I do. I mean, clearly, I just met you, and you came in on that motorcycle. I mean, like, just full trust, apparently, right here, right now. Very gullible, very easy, very loyal. Uh, and so we get into the plane, and we start going up. And we're at about 1,000 feet, and I'm fine. I'm totally fine. Then we get to 5,000, and I'm fine, you know? I'm I'm totally fine. Then we get to 20,000, which is where we're going to jump from. And I'm freaking out at this point. Like, I'm in the front of the airplane. I'm going to be the last to jump. There's a group of people coming, and and then they open the back of the airplane, and I'm like, oh, there's like nothing keeping us from now to the ground. And then when I look over, I see the people who are first to jump, and they're just like sitting there, and then they're gone. Like, they're not in the airplane anymore, and I'm just going, oh, like, this is what's about to happen. And then one person after another person after another person, they're just gone and going. And I'm not moving at this point, and yet somehow this guy is pushing me, which is weird because he's so small, I'm wearing him like a backpack at this point, but he's like pushing me forward and we get to the end and he says are you ready and I go what and we jump (laughs) and even though they say in that little video don't open your mouth I just scream for like a solid minute I'm freaking out I'm terrified and like that is just taking over me I can't even think about what's going on in the moment everything's surreal everything's crazy the wind is blowing through my hair and yes I had hair back then And after about a solid minute of that, something like really unique began to happen in me. That like absolute sheer panic fear began to be replaced by this unbelievable excitement and joy. Because as I was going down, like plummeting to the earth, I realized I'm actually quite safe right now. (laughs) Like I'm actually tethered to someone that knows what they're doing. I don't know what I'm doing in this moment. Um, but he does. Uh, I'm attached to him. And it's not up to me to land us safely. It's up to him. Now, why do I mention that to you? Because when things happen in our life, whether it's crazy situations or suffering or persecution or job loss or diagnosis or wayward kids or just the suffering That happens on a day-to-day basis, we have to be tethered into something that's greater than ourselves. And the sad reality, the tragic reality is so many of us, if we're honest, what we try to tether our lives in into those moments is our jobs, is our money, is our finances, is our abilities, is what others think about us. We try to find something we can hold on to, something we can control. And when we're left alone, we are left to plummet to the ground, and yet when we're tethered to the one who's gone the path before us, who can navigate us and to land us safely, that's where we can enjoy the ride, even though sometimes it's crazy. And so welcome to suffering, Smyrna. And that's where we're at this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Revelations 2, 8 through 11. Or if you have your booklets, go ahead and turn with us there. Because as we look at this passage this morning, we're going to see these kind of three movements playing out. And the, the hope of this morning, as we look at this passage, is that we would embrace the reality that when we encounter suffering, we would surrender to our Savior. And those are the three movements we're going to see in this passage. First, we're going to see our Savior. Then we're going to see our suffering. Then we're going to see our call to surrender. So first up, we're going to see our Savior, just who Jesus is, who we're tethered to in this moment. And so Revelations 2.8 has this picture of Jesus, and it says, And to the angel of the church of Smyrna write the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. And so if you've noticed already, all of these letters begin with a picture of Jesus, of, of who he is and what he's done. And so all of them begin with a snapshot, and every snapshot connects directly with the situation that these churches are facing. And so in here, we see two predominant things about Jesus. First, we see that he's in control. He's the one that's in control. It says that he has the, he's, uh, these are the words of the first and the last. He's the beginning. He's the end. He knows the end from the beginning. He is in control. He's sovereign over all things. He's been here before. Nothing surprises him. He, he's in control, but not only is he, he in control, he's the one that conquers. He says, These are the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. That he wasn't just this sovereign deity. This sovereign deity entered into humanity. He entered into the suffering. And not only did he enter into the suffering, he conquered it. That the end of all of our suffering is death. Death. Like, that's the utmost of all of our suffering, and Jesus came, entered into that suffering, and not only did he enter into that suffering, he conquered that suffering. And so, what does that mean? If death is the ultimate, what does that mean about every other bit of suffering that we face in our life? That he's the one that conquers, he's the one that's in control, and this is what we want, this is what we need. That in the midst of our sufferings and hardships and persecutions and things that aren't going the way that we want them to go, we want someone who is sovereign enough that's in control and yet strong enough to conquer. And the tragedy here is this. You think that's you. And it's not. A couple weeks back... um, for those of you that kind of know more of my story, my wife and I had been struggling with infertility for over two years. And God blessed us with a child. Uh, we found out, uh, honestly, that the, the day before my birthday this past year that, that we were pregnant. So we were so excited. Started doing all the things that pregnant people do. We were going to hospitals and, 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 and talking to, you know, taking the sonograms everything. Well, in that process, they found a little spot on my son's heart. And they looked at that and they go, hey, it's, it's nothing, it'll go away. Well, they, they did another sonogram a few weeks later, it was still there. No, it's nothing, it'll go away. A few weeks later, it's still there. So we started entering into getting blood tests and trying to figure out what this spot meant. And here's the reality of what suffering does to you. It exposes the lie that you're God because you're not. So I remember peeling away in this time and I would go to this park and I would just pour myself out to God and it just exposed how little control I really had in this situation. I wanted to be the hero of my family. I wanted to be the hero of my wife and the reality was all I felt was helplessness. Utter helplessness. Because so I couldn't do anything. I couldn't save her. I couldn't save my boy. Like, like there's just nothing. And that's exactly where we need to be because we're not the hero of the story. We're helpless. We need a hero to come in to save, to redeem, to conquer what we cannot conquer. And here's the thing. God did not promise that my boy would even live or that I would even have a boy. And yet in that season, just going out to him and just pouring myself all out to him, all of a sudden, I begin to realize that he's the first. He's the last. I'm not God. He's God. And what that did was it freed me to be the husband I'm meant to be. I'm my wife's husband. I'm not my wife's God. I'm my boy's father. I'm not my boy's God. And it freed me to be able to love them in a way that God wanted me to love them. And yes, the good news, we found out that, that, that he was good. But even if he wasn't, God is God and I am not. In the midst of hardships, it's this exposing reality that we are not in control we have much less control of our lives than we think of. On a day-to-day basis, we kind of think we got things going on. Here's our schedule. Here's our events. But an idle phone call today can radically transform your life and expose how little control you really have. But when you're tethered to the first and the last who died and came back to life, you can have hope in the midst of it. You can have peace in the midst of it. And so in those, in those moments that, where you're slammed with things, what do you turn to? What do you run to? Because Jesus is saying, I'm the one that you turn to. I'm the one that you run to. I'm the one that was the first, the last who died and came to life. I'm the one who's in control, and I'm the one who conquers. That's our Savior. That's our Savior. And so when we see the riches of our Savior, we can embrace the reality of our suffering. When we see the riches of our Savior, we can embrace the reality of our suffering. Our our suffering picks up in verse 9. It says, I know, that's Jesus talking, I know your tribulation And your poverty, but you're rich. I love that it throws that in there. And the slander of those that say they are not, uh, they are Jews and are not, but they are the synagogue of Satan. And so, this passage here, when you see this passage, it sees these kind of three different levels of of suffering, right? It, It says, hey, there's a tribulation here, which is a physical suffering. It says there's poverty, which is a material suffering. There's a slander, which is a social suffering. And so suffering is coming at you from all angles. It's not often just one. There's multiple facets and forms of suffering, but it's important to note that this suffering isn't in spite of their relationship with Jesus. It's because of their relationship with Jesus. Like this is going on because they have linked their life up to this Messiah, this Christ, this savior, this hero. And because of that, they're actually now entering into the suffering. And Jesus promises this much to us. It says in 2 Timothy uh, 3.12, it says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's a promise from God that we like to ignore and go to the passages of Scripture that are nice and cute and cuddly, that he's going to be with us always, which is objectively true. But he's with us always in the highs and the lows. And he promises both. It says in 1 Peter 4.12, it says, uh, there's a few that I'm gonna read that aren't up here, but it says in 1 Peter 4.12, beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery or, uh, trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. How often when something weird happens to you or something hard happens to you, you're like, man, what's going on here? It feels weird. Like I thought, I thought God, you and I were on the same team here. Says so this isn't anything strange, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you must rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Second Corinthians 4.16 says, hey, we don't lose heart, though. Our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light, momentary affliction. Watch this is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So it's not just we suffer, die, and then we get to go to heaven, but that suffering that we experience in this life is somehow, in some way, in God's providence and goodness, preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that would far exceed if we just had a cush life. As we look to the things that are not, uh, uh, as we don't look to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, they're temporary, they're going to burn up, they're going to end up in a junkyard one day. But the things that are unseen are eternal. You See, when people embrace this reality, it radically transformed their sufferings. Because in this life, you will have suffering. It's a reality of life. To live is to suffer because we live in a broken world. But when you embrace this reality and you embrace the reality, Jesus, it will transform you. The early followers of Jesus, they would go and they would preach in front of the very same people that just killed Jesus. And they basically looked at them and they're like, well, um, you killed him. He seems to be doing okay. So best you can do to us is kill us. And I think we're going to be all right. So we're tethered to that guy. It says they would beat them. And it says in Acts 5.41, it says that these people that were beaten re- left the council rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. We have got to change our theology on suffering men. A guy named Polycarp, who was the bishop of Smyrna a couple years after this book was written, or this letter was written to uh, this church, uh, entered into that suffering, uh, was the leader of the church in Smyrna, and, and, and as, um, as the Romans began to kind of look at the Christians and go, hey, I, I, don't, I don't love what you're doing, I don't love what you're teaching, uh, namely because you're not abiding by all things Rome, we're gonna come after you, and so recant, and he wouldn't, and so they put him up to the stake, and they, they set it on fire. They were burning him at the stake, and they were, they were doing the whole, like, hey, any last words, and he said this, because they were saying, hey, would you recant, like, just, just dismiss Jesus, and we'll let you live, and in any last words, and he said this, he says, for 86 years I've served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I then blaspheme my king and my savior? He is tied to a piece of wood with fire around him at this point. And then he says, you threaten me with fire that burns for a moment and after a little while is quenched, but you're ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. Do your worst. That's how you suffer. Why? Because you're not holding on to the trinkets of this world. You're holding on to the treasure in heaven. So why do we do all this? Jesus tells us, Matthew 16, 25, for whoever would save his life will lose it. but Whoever will lose his life for my sake, he will find it. He is better. He's worth it. That's why. And Jesus comes along, and in one of his last discourse that he gives to his disciples, he He's sharing them all this stuff that's gonna happen. It's gonna be hard, it's gonna be difficult. But then he says, I've said all these things, John 16, I've said all these things to you that you might have peace. In this world, you will have tribulation. You will have hardships. But he says, take heart, which means to have courage, which is actually the same word for be a man. Take heart, have courage, act like men. Why? Because I've overcome the world. I got it. The worst thing that could happen to you, I've taken care of. So in the midst of job loss and cancer diagnosis and being ridiculed by family because of your faith, whatever it might be for you, you can have peace. You can have life. Why? Because he's overcome. So stop looking at your situation to change for that to be your savior. Let your savior be your savior. In the midst of suffering, tether yourself to him. And so if this is the suffering we should expect, and this is the savior we should embrace, then we have one response. It's to surrender. And surrender. And that's where the passage goes next. Revelations 2.10 says it this way. Do not fear about what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you might be tested And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has ear, let him hear what the spirit of the churches says. And so, in this little bitty passage, Jesus is going to give these three distinct commands of what it looks like to actually surrender. And the first thing he says is don't be afraid, don't fear, which is odd because he literally follows it with the devil is about to throw you in prison. (laughs) So, don't be afraid. And not like, don't be afraid, because you're about to get a puppy. You know, like, it's don't be afraid, because which in your mind, the worst thing that's about to happen is actually about to happen. So don't be afraid, and then you fill in that blank. What's that worst thing that you go, man, if that happens, what's going to happen to me? He says, don't be afraid, because the devil is about to throw some of you in prison. But then watch this, go back to verse 9. We shouldn't be afraid because first it says Jesus begins all this, all your tribulation, all your hardships, everything, by saying, I know. I know these things are happening. I'm not unaware. Remember, I'm the first and the last. I'm the beginning and the end. I know these things are happening. I'm intimately acquainted with the suffering you're feeling right now. Not only because I know you and I love you, but because I've entered into it when I became man. And we have a great high priest that's able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he has gone before us in them. Jesus is called the forerunner of our faith, which is the person in a military campaign that's the first one out. It's a scout to go before everyone else, to experience everything else before the men would actually have to experience themselves. And so he goes, I know I've been there. But the other reason we're not supposed to be afraid is verse 10. It says that this suffering has a purpose. It's, It's to be tested. But notice it's for a set time. It says that you may be tested, and for 10 days you'll have tribulation. That word tested just means to expose, it's to reveal what's already in you. And so it's not this past fail up there in which God just, this distant deity kind of going, okay, is he going to do good or not? He's trying to expose in your own heart what's going on in you, but then notice it's for a set temporary period of time. And for some of you it might be 10 days, some 10 months, some 10 years. Some your entire lifetime. But even then, that's temporary. Because if we know Christ, that even the most difficult lives will end with the most glorious eternity. So don't be afraid. Second, he tells us to be faithful. And that word gets thrown around a lot, honestly. That guy's faithful. And we typically just mean they showed up on time and did what they were supposed to do. That's not what that word means. It means that everything you do is out of a faith, out of a trust, that you're tethered into someone else. You're tethered into Christ. And so when he says be faithful, he's saying, hey, everything about you needs to be linked into this one who was and is and is to come, who is the first and the last, who died and didn't stay dead. Be faithful. And then if you look in the passage, God desires to reward that faithfulness. And there's a lot in your booklet about that. The last command is to to hear, to listen. That is, you're not being afraid because he knows, he's intimately equated, that you know that this is a a test for a a short amount of time, whether that short amount of time is the rest of your life. You're walking in faith because you're trusting in him. You listen to him. You find ways to linger with him, men. One of the great sins of our culture right now is busyness. And it's distracting you. And it's killing you. You find times to linger, to be still, and to know, not that you're God, but to be still and know that He is God. That even if the, the thing you are most finding your security in is thrown into the thing you're most afraid of, you go, He's gone, and He's got this. So you listen into Him, because He's the one that conquers. You see, the passage ends by saying this in Revelation 2.11, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And it's easy to read that and go, okay, got to white knuckle this, got to endure. And then you miss the entire point of the passage, that you don't conquer alone. That we're never meant to conquer alone. You're tethered into the one who did conquer, who died and didn't stay dead, Our Romans says it this way, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. And I love that phrase, more than conquerors, because to be a conqueror means that I've defeated my enemy. But to be more than a conqueror means my enemy now serves me. And so we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor, nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor death nor anything else in all of creation, even our own stupidity at times, amen, amen, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's the one that conquers. If I jumped out of that plane alone, I had, would have one outcome, which is smashing into the earth. But if I'm tethered to the one who knows what they're doing, who's been there before, who can navigate, then I can enjoy the ride because he'll navigate me safely down. When Jesus came, he lived that perfect life that you could not. He was the one that was the first and the last. He was the God of the universe, infinite. And yet he became the intimate Jesus who died but conquered what we could not conquer, which was death itself. And if he did that, then no matter what you list out on the things you're suffering through right now, and for whatever reason, he's got it. He's got it. And when he came, this crown of life that's mentioned in here was a crown of thorns. That was embedded into him. So that when he died and didn't stay dead and rose to life, that crown of thorns would become that crown of life that he gives freely to anyone that would trust in him. And so we as men are not the hero. We need a hero. And the good news is we have one who's gone before us, who loves us, who died, did not stay dead. And so in the midst of your suffering, you surrender to your Savior. Let me pray for us. Well, Father, we just want to admit, I want to admit that I want to be in control. I want to have it all together. I want to conquer. I want to know all the right answers. And suffering has a way, God, in my own life, of waking me up to the realities how helpless I really am. And so, God, thank you for a hero that would come in save us and rescue us. And if we feel like we're falling to earth right now, terrified, would we be reminded that we in Christ are tethered into the one that is the first and the last who was and is to come, who died and did not stay dead. So, Lord, would you be with us now as we just... Dive deeper into this passage and discuss it as men. So, Lord, we love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Men, a proper response, men, in the midst of all this is to worship. And so just one announcement before we dismiss. We have a night of worship coming uh, this Saturday, March 7th from 7 p.m. We'd love for you all to join us. Uh, Just a time to come and to be reminded of the one we're tethered into. And so love you guys. And go ahead and jump into your time with your group.